Welcome to another exciting and what I think is going to be a very informative podcast with Mr. Joe Byers. Joe has been in the industry 40 years. He actually started out as, as a, in education. He ended up as a principal in an elementary school, but he found out he could write outdoor articles pretty well. So he moved on to the outdoor industry full time and he's been to Africa over 20 times. And Joe knows how to tell a story. So I'm so happy to have Mr. Joe Byers of Bowhunting Net on the show with us today. Welcome, hey, Joe. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And, and let me touch base on that. My, my grandfather was a, a, a politician. He was a county commissioner here locally. I live in Hagerstown, Maryland. And, uh, and he was a great storyteller. And, I, you know, I remember just hearing him tell story after story after story. It was very animated. And to the point that when we'd go hunting, I would, I would construct the story that I was going to tell on the way back to, uh, to him, whether we were driving or in a, in a, a camper or whatever. Is that I had that, that story running in my mind. And I swear that's probably where uh, that was my preparation for what I've been doing for the last 40 years. So, Well, you had a great mentor. We did. Sure. He was a wonderful man. I'm, you know, honored to be his grandson. Now, folks, Joe most recently took over uh, the editor-in-chief of Bowhunting Net. Joe, how'd that come about? Well, I, I've, I've, it's, I guess it's networking, people that I've worked with for a long time. I started out, I've, I've written for just about every outdoor magazine and uh, a number of, of blogs. Um, I used to write for uh, the hunting page, which I think still exists, but it's a different organization. But I had 2,200 posts with them. So I've had a, a fair amount of, uh, of experience there. Plus, I have a great portfolio of images. So almost anything, especially if it deals with whitetail deer, uh, almost any circumstance, if it's, you know, using, uh, uh, you know, a new strategy or I haven't tried tree saddles yet. I don't know. That I don't know that I'm going to do that. But anyway, about everything else, I have uh, uh, good images to show um, how something's done or where it can be done or, or how to set it up, you know, that kind of thing. So that's that was a big benefit. You mentioned about writing so many articles, I'm going to give a shout out to Judd Cooney. Do you know Judd? Oh, sure. Yes. I've been fortunate. He used to live in Pagosa Springs. I think he still does and has his uh, outfitting business up in Iowa. I've been, you know, down at his house and uh, he taught me how to shoot a muzzleloader because I didn't, I didn't know anything about muzzleloaders. I'm a rifle hunter or, a, you know, archery fan. And, uh, Shot a nice deer at Judge Place, and it's up on the wall. And um, Judd was a prolific writer. Yes, yes, he was a he was a warden too, was he not? Did he not yes, work he for was. the game commission? Yes. Yep. Back in the day, now wow. Judd's probably our age uh, at this time. But I just want to give a shout out for uh, for Judd Cooney. And if you never heard him, folks, uh, just Google him. And uh, he's an amazing writer. Uh, and he's just a good guy to know. So, Joe, let's get back to you. You were telling me in the warm-up for the podcast how you went to Africa 20 times. Share it out with the, with the uh, listeners because people today think they can't go to Africa. Well, I'll put this in, that you can go to Africa cheaper than you can go to a Colorado guided elk hunt today? Uh, actually, maybe for half of what that costs. Yeah, it's one of the things I, I, I used to write about this just yearly, annually, why it's literally the best deal in hunting today, an African Plains game safari. Uh, and um, I, I used to, I'm, a, I'm an air mile junkie. I used to say every time I go to McDonald's for a dollar iced tea, when you could get iced tea for a dollar. You know, I'm one. <laughs> I'm one mile closer to Africa, and and back then for eighty thousand uh, air miles, you could go any place in Africa. So I used to even fly from from Dulles Airport in uh, in Virginia 
to Johannesburg and then on to Namibia. I did that uh, six or eight times. So you can even go to multiple countries. So air miles are one way to get there, now, although they're not as good as they used to be. The second thing is if you book well ahead of time, like right now, I get I, almost every day I get a, an offer for an African safari flight uh, for seven or $800. Um, and last year, I, I fulfilled a lifelong dream. I got to talk about that. I took, I took my daughter and, her, and my three grandsons to Africa. We all went on the oh same African safari. Yeah, it was, they had a fantastic time. And, and that's what I did. I, we went in March and I'd never been to Africa in March because uh, it's still fairly warm then. it's rainy. Um, but we were able to get uh, airfare uh, under a thousand dollars each now for the five of us. So um, I was able to do that. And I found an outfitter that, uh, that had a family rate that he basically said, look, you can shoot six animals. I don't care who does, you know, everyone can shoot one or one person can shoot all six. I don't care. So uh, anyway, we were able to work that out. Each of the three boys got to shoot two animals. And, you know, they're, <laughs> they were just on cloud nine. Plus it was a great, a great experience uh, for them. I mean, to be in a different culture, um, you know, just the, the whole travel aspect of flying, you know, flying overnight and, and visiting a foreign country. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I bought um, uh, some stock uh, 25 years or so ago. I mean, and it's, it, I, I invested $2,000 and, and when I cashed it in here last year, it was worth six. So that was my, that was my big investment. And I've been saving that money for a long time. And there's not one thing I'd rather do differently than that. I, and we really got our money's worth. Well, that's great. And one thing, the educator in you comes out because you mentioned hunting and listen closely to what I'm about to say. Hunting is more about killing animals. Hunting to me and to Joe and other friends of mine in the industry is about the whole journey, the adventure, the meeting new people. The sitting, I can remember sitting with the elders up in uh, Kujuwak outside of uh, Angaba Bay, uh, caribou hunting, and sitting there and just listening to these gentlemen talk about their culture because they don't have a written culture, they have a verbal culture. So from generation to generation, their history is passed down. And it's just, you have to immerse yourself in that. But if you're a hunter and you're not taking advantage of hanging out with the locals, going and seeing the people, especially if you're, if you're hunting in different countries or different cultures, and just sitting there and listening, not talking. They don't need to know what you know because it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> but you know, you need, I'll say it this way, you need to know what they know because it'll change your outlook on the whole planet and what you're about. Joe, your comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's the experience. I, I'm a big fan of Jim Shockey. And uh, if you, I don't know if you watch any of his, his uh, shows, I, I don't watch them so much on television. I watch them on YouTube because you can, you know, watch them whenever you want and whatever. And the thing that, that Jim Shockey does is he really pays great attention to the culture. He likes to travel to different places and has traveled to just about every place, I think, in the world. But uh, there, it's a great focus. Probably 10% of the, of the show is on hunting, and the rest is on just uh, how to get there, who he's hunting with, uh, experiences they've had, that kind of thing. And let me, let me back up one more, one more story, if I can. The, the reason I'm, that you and I are talking today, I mentioned my, uh, uh, my grandfather, Joseph Huffman. When he was, when I was 16 and he was 62, he retired from a business. His lifelong dream was to drive to Alaska. And he had uh, a Jeep FC 170, which was uh, a model of Jeep that was a cab over with a bed in the back. And they don't make it anymore. And I haven't seen one in forever. But anyway, he bought one and put a camper on the back of it. And he, he had had two or three heart attacks uh, his wife, my grandmother, couldn't drive. 
So I was the insurance policy. They it basically just took me along in case granddad had a heart attack. Uh, and so grandma wouldn't get stuck out in the wilderness. But we drove from Maryland across the United States, up the Alaska Highway. We spent a month driving around Alaska, fishing uh, every part, uh, came back to the Yukon Territory, did a 10-day big game hunt in the Yukon Territory uh, with uh, Indian guides on horseback. I mean, it was, it was a boy's dream. But that was literally a boy-to-man summer for me. When I came back, I was a different person than when I left. And um, I've, I've never forgotten that. And I guess other than marrying my wife and the birth of my child, that's the third most significant event in my life, uh, just, just having that experience. And so, I, again, I mentioned uh, I think I have three grandsons. And, so far, and actually, I have six uh, I have three step-grandsons and, and three <laughs> real grandsons. Anyway, I've had all six of them have been to Alaska, and four of the six have been to Africa. So I wanted to share that same experience of traveling and, and, um, and you know, the sense of adventure. Of, uh, it, it always involves hunting, but it's not so much the hunt as it is the adventure. And so I've tried to instill that in them, and I, I, I think I was successful. Well, I'm sure you were, and and to um, underscript uh, Jim Shockey, uh, folks, if you've never taken a look on YouTube of his Hand of Man Museum, and it's artifacts from all his travels, and people that he really doesn't know show up up on up in Vancouver and say, "Hey, Jim, I'd like to donate this to uh, your museum," and he's it keeps growing, I guess I'll say it that way. And it's artifacts of, from culture, just like Joe and I were talking about, from all different places that he's been. And then people are bringing things uh, to him that reflect different cultures. And one thing that the, and I'll just say this, the anti-hunters don't understand about the hunting tradition. It's a hunting tradition. And people have been hunter-gatherers for thousands and thousands of years. And there's a part of it that's instilled, I believe, in every man. Now, every man doesn't have the opportunity. But as a young man, I knew I was going to be a hunter. There wasn't any question about it. Where did that come from? Maybe reading Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, maybe my neighbor, Otto Knight, saying, you know, you need to go catch some trout at the at the cabin or you know here's a 410 go shoot a rabbit um you know and i'm sure that's where it came from but people had to mentor me but there was something instilled to me that said i want to be a hunter your thoughts on that yeah absolutely i i I, you know i remember shooting my first squirrel with my grandfather um you know i think i was 10 um uh, yeah, I, uh, the, my father was a, a driver's education teacher, and he also had a small farm. And, and my, my dad worked 16 hours a day every day of his life. Uh, you know, I don't ever remember us having a catch. You know, almost every father, son, sometime or other, uh, you know, you, uh, you have a <laughs> shoot baskets or whatever. We never did that. And that's because we worked so hard. I mean, he was always working. There was always a fence to fix. There were cows to feed. Um, when I was in high school, uh, you know, some of some of my friends would complain about having to be at school on time or whatever. Well, I I had to get up every morning at seven o'clock. At least I had to be in the barn. We had animals to feed, and then you came back and had breakfast and went to school. And then when you came home. I, I never got to play little league or sports or any of the things in high school because after school I had chores to do. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot to learning in all of that. And I, I think it, it's, you don't like it as a, as a youngster, but it's a character building experience. I mean, it, when I went to college, uh, the, the people that I used to just shake my head at people would, you know, they couldn't go to an eight o'clock class or a nine o'clock class because they couldn't get out of bed. I was I was uh, in the in the mess hall having breakfast 
and early for my eight o'clock class every day. It's because, you know, I had, I had been managed or that was the lifestyle that I was accustomed to. Uh, you know, they always complained about this, complained about roast, roast beef again. <laughs> what, what planet are you folks from? <laughs> it's sad how kids today don't have the opportunity to be responsible for themselves and be accountable for themselves. Um, I might get some hate mail on that, but yes, there are a lot of fatherless um, young boys out there. And uh, I'll give a plug right now for fathersinthefield.com. Uh, if you haven't heard about that, it's a group of men that have taken on themselves as a mission to mentor boys from age seven to 17. Go to fathersinthefield.com, check it out and see if that's something you'd like to be involved in because boys need mentorship. They need to see what a, a man was created to be and that's to work. That's to be responsible and that's to make the world a better place. My thoughts, your thoughts? Yeah, I, well, I, let me go one better on that. There's there's some interesting uh, statistics. Uh, there's a program called Dads on Duty that's around in certain places. And it's basically uh, kids that are getting in trouble. They have a group of dads that volunteer to come in. And, and basically, instead of going to detention, you go have to sit with the dad. And, and uh, the, the dads have made a tremendous difference in um, the uh, behavior of, of kids, especially young boys. Uh, one of the statistics that's interesting, the, one of the worst things that can happen to you um, as a child is to be in a uh, one-parent family. And, and God knows we all bless our single moms, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard job. And the statistics show that, that kids that grow up uh, in a single family home, the probability of getting in trouble, of not graduating from high school or not graduating from college, all those all those statistics are lower. However, if it's a single dad family, they're the same as a two-parent family. And that's that's kind of interesting. That's yeah. exactly what you were saying is that I, you know, the you know as a surprise to some of our liberal livers of <laughs> viewers, there is a difference between a man and a woman. And, yes, and I think is. every child, every child should have the benefit of growing up with a father and a mother. And uh, I, I feel sad for those that don't. And uh, so anything that promotes that. And the good news about where the outdoor industry is going is that more and more, it's more of a family event. Um, when I go, uh, I go out on several media hunts every year and more and more, there are women in those, in those camps uh, and they're role models then for other women to, to participate. So I think the more we make this a family affair, I say this as in the, the hunting experience, it's more of it's a hunting affair. We involve young children. They don't need to carry a gun or a bow. They can just come along and, um, you know, they can play in the blind while, while you're waiting for a deer or just walk around and, you know, listen to birds, learn to identify what birds make what sounds, uh, what animal signs you see, tracks and scat and and leaves and identify trees and all of the aspects of learning about nature. Once they're involved in it, then it becomes more interesting to them. Um, my, my father was a, a great, uh, um, he was a bird expert. <laughs> There's a name for that that slips me, but, you know, and so growing up, you know, almost every bird I hear, if I hear a bird sound that I don't know, it gets my attention because I know all the bird sounds. And, I know it must be a strange bird that's in my area because I know what they all are. I can identify them by their plumage and how they fly and so forth. And that's just how I grew up. That was part of the, the knowledge base that I gained as a young person. You know, you mentioned something about a family affair and I'll go back to 1966. I was in uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, going to the university there and working for a gentleman uh, named Dick Rogers and 18 uh, year old, beer bar and so he said hutch where are you going for uh thanksgiving and i lived in new york was from new york 
And I said, um, nowhere. I'm staying, you know, I'll just stay on campus and stay in my room and do whatever. He said, no, no, no. You got to come with me to Union Center and we'll go deer hunting. I go, I've heard about deer hunting, but uh, I don't know. He, he said, work a few more hours. And, you know, back then I got, I got my rotary boots. I got a red hat and I got a red cloak. It wasn't plaid or anything. It was just a red cloak. And I got a J.C. Hagen's 12-gauge shotgun, some slugs, and a license for 50 bucks, all in. So I was ready to go. I was ready to go deer hunting. And plus, I had a couple of bucks for beer. And uh, so then we went to uh, Union Center of Wisconsin, town of 500 people. But in the community, all his cousins and neighbors, you know, they were all were farmers. His brother was a farmer, uh, Jim's farm. We went up there opening day and and I said, what do I do? He says, see that log over there? Yeah, go lay behind that. And, you know, when a deer comes by, shoot it. And he went out in the field. He had a, a scope 30-odd six and I had that pump shotgun. So I'm laying there and I've never been deer hunting before, folks. <laughs> so I'm laying there and all of a sudden I can see I can see Dick. I can't see anything else, but I can see Dick in the field. He's got a scope up and, you know, he's looking sort of kind of my way. It wasn't pointed at me, but it was sort of kind of my way. I'm going, okay. And then all of a sudden he starts pointing like fast. And I'm going, what the heck? And then I hear a squirrel, you know, coming closer and closer. And so he, he goes, you know, he's pointing like this. And so I I literally jumped up. There's a deer not 20 yards from me. Boom, boom. <laughs> and I emptied that shotgun. I hit him once in the body. The first shot had to be in the body. Once in the ear and the rest of the shots, who knows? And he yells, Hutch, stop shooting. The deer is dead. <laughs> and so the deer, you know, went another... 20, 30 yards and just collapse and he's just laughing and, and we're hooting it up. And I said, I shot a deer, I shot a deer. You know, and I'm amped up, folks. You know, he says, give me your shotgun. So I gave it and I'm shaking. He says, okay, now you got to gut it out. I said, how do I do that? Here's a knife. There's the guts and I'll walk you through it. So he did walk me through it, cleaning my first deer. But the interesting thing is, so he picked it up hung it in the barn, took it to the barn. And at the end of the day, we came back and had a skinning party. And the ladies had on planks, saw horses and just wood planks. And we had lights in the barn and the fire there was, it was warm enough. And they had dinner laid out for us. We're having a skinny party because I think we got three deer. So the, the men are taking the deer apart and putting them in bins and they're going to, you know, we're going to eat it. It was definitely field the plate. And uh, everybody was there. Kids were there. Wives were there. Girlfriends were there. Yeah, we had a couple of beers. I think some guys drank whiskey. I didn't. I just drank beer. I was an athlete, so I didn't. I just drank beer. I guess that was enough. But it was a family affair. It was based on community. And everybody took some, some of the deer home. And there weren't any leftovers because there were probably 10 or 15 of hunters and all the rest were families. So we're talking 30, 40 people probably, but it was community. And I'll never forget that, that how everybody just came together for hunting, but it was a community affair where everybody shared, had a lot of laughs. And that was the hunting experience that brought me into the hunting community. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's uh, one of the, let's go back to Africa for a minute. One of the, one of the things, if you would, were to go to Africa, for example, on a Plains game hunt, uh, uh, one of the surprising things that you would learn is that just like, as you had to field dress the deer uh, where you shot it, and typically that's what Americans do. Africans don't do that. They, uh, number one, typically you can almost always drive to where you hunt. Um, I don't know why that is because the, the terrain can be rough and rugged and so forth, but it seems like you always can. 
they load the animal and then they bring it back to a, a slaughterhouse. They hang it and there they skin it and then they take out the internal organs, most of which they eat, even the lining of the stomach. Uh, but, you know, nothing goes to waste in Africa. So it's not, on, not only do they eat it all, but it's processed in such a way so that there's no waste. I mean, they, 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 they uh, skin them uh, and then cut them up and hang them in, in a cooler. Uh, any, uh, any African operation always has a, um, a, cool, a, a, a cooler to hang deer in or to hang animals in. So it doesn't matter if it's a warthog or a giant Elon bull, they cut it up so they can hang it in there. And then it's processed and then either they eat it, um, they give it to the local communities or they sell it. So absolutely nothing goes to waste in Africa. Similar what experience like you were having, Hutch. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the cow's lining, the lining of a cow is called tripe. Yes. The stomach. And so, people eat that. I don't know if they eat it anymore, but they used to eat it. Well, and 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 the big thing, and even here locally in Maryland, in in country areas, is something called hog maw. And hog maw is a is a pork stomach that's stuffed with potatoes and 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 meat of some kind and vegetables and so forth. And they put it in, and, and they it's it's like a giant muffin. <laughs> or like a turkey without legs, if you want her head. Anyway, they yeah. put it in the oven and bake it. And then they, you know, bake it for a couple hours until everything's all cooked. And, oh, that's a, that's a real popular local dish at, um, you, you know, it's in a country affair. There are probably not too many in Baltimore or Washington. They don't have too many hog malls, but out here, um, that's, <laughs> that's a fairly common event. Yeah, I'd like to try that sometime. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> yeah. I'd 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 like to try that because I've eaten a lot of different, you know, things in different cultures, and so you know that sounds that sounds interesting to me. So when you talk about photography, was that just an offshoot of all the places that you went, or was that something special? It goes back to goes back to 1963. That's 1963 is when I went to Alaska. So tells you how old I am. <laughs> That time trip with my granddad. My my grandfather brought bought a Zeiss uh, Icon camera that we for that trip, and it, we used to shoot slides. and uh, And during that trip, he would often ask me to take pictures, or he would give me the camera. And when you drove, you know, we would drive ten hours a day for days on end uh, because it was a long trip. Um, and uh, the camera gave me something to do when I got out of the vehicle. You know, I could take pictures. We took pictures of fish. You know, we took pictures of eagles and animals and, you know, whatever. Whatever we could find, it was interesting. Went through the Badlands and in South Dakota on the way out. And, you know, that's a, a very photo, uh, photographic place. So uh, it, was, it was that involvement with that camera that got me interested. And then what I learned being an outdoor writer um, I, uh, I, I took my first article to a, uh, a person that worked for the local newspaper, did the, out, the outdoor page. And I said, look, I'd like to send this off to a magazine. I've read outdoor magazines my whole life uh, and I'm 30 at this time. So, you know, it's I'm fairly advanced in that. Um, I said, I, I, what do you read it and tell me what you think. And so he, he took it home with him. He stopped the next day and said, yeah. He said, the article's fine, but he said, you need photos. You need to take each element of the article and you need to have a color slide and an eight by 10 black and white photograph to illustrate your point. So, cause you needed about 20 slides and, and 10 eight by 10 black and whites, at least 10 uh, for each article. So um, at first I started buying, I would, I would take the pictures of black and white film take them someplace and have them blown up. But that got, that got expensive. Uh, my, my first article I was paid $50 for. So you, if you had much, much expense in photography, you know, you didn't make any money at it. So, so I learned to, uh, I was in the JCs back then. I had a couple of photographers that were in the JCs and I said, Hey, would you show me how to do this? Sure. Come on over. We'll spend some time in the dark room. So 
eventually um, I ended up with my own dark room um, and, and I would take pictures and then develop the film and then print the film. That was a big thing so that you could get, you could take a big picture and just print a section of it because that showed what it is you wanted or had an animal in it or whatever. So um, anyway, that whole, the whole process of writing and photography went together as an outdoor writer. And, and, and the more I learned about one led to more than I needed to know about the other. And so that's, that's kind of how I got into photography. aspect. Now you've written a couple of books. Um, now talk about how you came up with the idea of write a book about um, crossbow hunting. Crossbows. Okay. Well, just so happens. There it is. <laughs> it's called yeah, the it's called the ultimate guide to crossbow hunting. And it's a funny story about this. I uh, I I used to, I used to go to quite a few shows. I went to the shot show, the shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show, the archery trade show. I just came back from that one. I still go there. And the Safari Club International show. And uh, I. I I thought I had enough experiences and if I took some of my old magazine articles that I could put them into a book. So I made uh, elaborate presentations or, or put packets together and I went to the various publishers and, and tried to get interviews with the, with the editor and whatever. Anyway, I, I tried it one year with no success. I tried uh, the next year uh, again, at, this was at the SHOT Show, which was in Las Vegas. Um, uh, and at that, still no, no, couldn't get anybody interested. So I went to a, a cocktail party. Uh, some of the, I think one of it was uh, Outdoor Life or Field and Stream and maybe a combination of the two because they're both owned by the same people. Um, anyway, and I'm, I'm having a drink and, and uh, one of the editors walks up and says, hi, Joe, what are you up to? I said, well, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a good bit about crossbows. I'm finding that, you know, there's a lot of interest in that. And, uh, and you know, there's not much else published about it. He said, well, why don't you write a book? Um, I'll help you. Just you send me an outline and I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know if you think it work, if you think it'll work. <laughs> and and I, as, I'm, as I'm thinking, number one, someone inside me is thinking, Okay, good. This is what I wanted to do, and then I think, but but how unlikely is this? It's not. This isn't how things are supposed to work. You do, you know, you make a presentation, you get all this information organized. No, you just happen to be standing in the right line with a drink in your hand, and somebody says, "Joe, what are you up to?" So anyway, and and uh, take him at his word. I when I got back home, I I did an outline and sent it into him, and he said, "Sure, we'll publish that." So anyway, then I had to go through the process of writing it, uh, which took uh, six or eight months. I mean, there's a lot of work involved in writing a book. And this one, just, just I'll show it again. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Crossbow Hunting. Put it up higher so people can okay, there see we go. It in case this video goes out. Now, where would somebody, if they want to buy this, Joe, where would they go to buy it? Amazon. Okay. A Amazon. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's four and a half stars. So, you know, and, and it's been it's been around for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, they can they can buy it there. They can buy it digitally or they can buy it, uh, um, uh, you know, in paperback. Uh, sure. maybe so it's on Kindle books. or paperback. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. And, and what's it cost? Actually, 20, 30 bucks? Uh, 20, bucks? It's uh, twenty four ninety five. OK. But it's got 40 chapters and, you know, lots of lots of pictures. Let's see if we can this i mean there's you know you can see lots there we go i can look at myself yeah i can it's very well very well illustrated um and uh it, and it's it's it is about crossbow hunting but it's probably 20 percent crossbows and 80 percent hunting i mean just in you know you could take the same the same tactics with a a, a compound bow or a rifle or a muzzleloader um i, I tried to i tried to make it uh uh, very inclusive as far as the kinds of tactics that people can use so that it isn't just for a narrow audience. So anyway, you can, um, I'm sure you can see it or see part of it at, uh, on Amazon. And if you want to contact me again, I have some here, I'll personally autograph one uh, for you. If that's, you know, I would like, I would like one. 
Okay, yeah, for All sure. Right. I'll, I'll put that on my list. I, I ran into a, um, uh, my neighbor at church here the other day, and she said, she said, what are you up to? Where have you been hunting? Because everyone knows I do that sure. a lot. And I said, well, I, you know, I have a book. Oh, you do? My, my son, my grandson, Max, would love one. Would you sign one for him? So that actually, this, that's where this one's going to go right now. I'm going to autograph it to Max. Well, and put me on the list, the Joe. I'd love, to, okay. I'd love to have it. Okay, Hutch, I'll put you on the list. <laughs> I'd love to have it. So let's let's wade into crossbow hunting a little bit. And I know there's traditionals, traditional bow hunters. I know there's compound bow hunters. And I know there's crossbow hunters. Now, crossbow, I think the Chinese initiated it or created it a gazillion years ago. Longbows, I know they used them extensively in... Europe, England, England, in England yeah. particularly, yeah, in England, the longbow, longbows, mm -hmm. and then um, the Indians, the Plains Indians, figured it out, and I believe even the East Coast Indians um, use use longbows. So why is there the discord? or maybe there isn't, between traditional compound recurves and the people who hunt with crossbows. What's your thought on that? Well, I, I think, actually, I've, I've lived through uh, that, um, that development, if you will. Okay, hold on. Get away with that. <laughs> um, um, I, I think I think the perception is that crossbow hunting is so much easier than than uh, hunting with a compound or a recurve. Uh, when I was I started shooting a bow in my early twenties, um, and I actually shot one as a kid, but I, I got seriously about bow hunting in my early twenties. Shot a recurve, uh, and then the compounds came along, and then there was this same disagreement about. You know, compounds are easier. You can hold them longer. You can aim better. You know, it was it was not it was unfair. It was wasn't as hard as as a hunting shooting with a recurve. Well, you know, there's two sides of that coin as well. But it was a similar kind of thing. And then when crossbows um, became started to become popular, then the compound people were saying the same thing about the crossbows. Geez. You don't have to hold them. You just aim them. They, you know, they shoot like a gun. You have a, a scope and so forth, and it's so much easier. Well, I'm not so sure. One of the, if if you think that, and you buy a crossbow and you go hunting, after you sit in the tree stand all day and no deer come by, and you're holding the crossbow in your hand, you're thinking, wait a minute, what what, what happened to the easy part? Okay, it's still hunting. You still have to pick the right spot to, to go hunting. You still have to find the deer or the elk or the bear or whatever it is that you're after. You still have to go through all of those steps. Now, when it comes down to making the shot, if you can aim with a scope as opposed to aiming through a peep sight, that's probably easier uh, and more more efficient. But you know that's not a bad thing in my perspective. When you launch an arrow, I want it to go exactly where. I've, I've aimed it and I wanted to kill that animal uh, in, in an instant, if that's possible. So I think that's, that's some of the, um, you know, some of the history of that. Uh, Ohio has been the, the, the standard. Ohio has had, uh, crossbows have been legal in their archery season for 25 years, at least, maybe 30 now. And, and the initial think was that, well, if, if uh, crossbows are legal in an archery season, then everybody will use one and that people won't use recurves and compound bows anymore. Okay, the, the history of, of Ohio has been that that isn't the case. Uh, what happens is about half of Ohio's bow hunters use a crossbow, about half use a, um, a vertical bow. So uh, one, you know, the good news is, is and, and once that has, once that discussion became well known, then um, at least most of the eastern and southern states 
said, well, it's really, really not going to make that much difference um, in game harvests or how people hunt. So why not just make crossbows legal um, in, in all of the archery seasons? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, where that's not true, <coughs> where that's not true is in the West. True. Western states, but like Colorado. Um, you need to get a drink of water, Joe? No, um, actually do. It would, let me do that. Uh, Wyoming, Wyoming is the only Western state that treats crossbows like vertical bows. So, uh, and I've, uh, I've hunted elk in Wyoming five times. Um, and I missed one <laughs> I should have got, uh, but I, I, uh, I've never killed an elk, uh, or a mule deer with a crossbow there. And uh, I hunted in Idaho. I've hunted in Idaho probably 10 times. I killed one with a recurve uh, about uh, 10 years ago. And then I killed one in 2020 with, with a, a crossbow. So I've had some experience both those places. And I can hunt in Idaho because I have, like you, I have shoulder problems. I can't, I can't draw a, a, a compound bow. And, and to those people that say, well, but, you know, you, if you, you know, can't, you can't get it all the way back. Well, you know, if you, sh from shooting a, um, any kind of bow, it, you have to practice. And so, you know, could I, could I muster a 40 pound bow back here? Yeah, I probably can. Can I do it 20 times in a row? Like I would need to do to practice and be proficient. The answer is no, I can't do that. And so, you know, you don't want people, uh, hunting with uh, with uh, weapons that aren't effective, and so um, you know I think there's nothing wrong with people our age certainly uh, being able to use a crossbow, but that's a state decision, state by state. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, crossbows are fun to shoot. Uh, they've gotten much less expensive. They're easier to cock now. You can sometimes cock them with a crank um, uh, rather than just a, a rope cocker. Um, there are, there are wonderful ways to teach young people to shoot with my grandkids. All three, all three of them have learned to shoot, uh, on a crossbow and not only how to, how to aim and, and pull the trigger, but, uh, loading it, uh, safety on safety off, uh, using a pull-up rope to get up, uh, to a small tree stand. Uh, you know, all, many of the things that, uh, that you would want to teach a young person about rifle safety or firearm safety, uh, you do the same things with a, with a crossbow. Uh, and I had a, I, I, I have a chapter in my book about a, uh, a fellow um, who had three daughters and he wanted to take them on a, on a uh, muzzleloading hunt. And uh, in order to teach them how to use the muzzleloader, because he lived uh, in a development, kind of like I do in a suburb, suburban area, but he could set up a crossbow in his backyard. And so he's, he taught his, his girls to shoot the same things, how to aim, squeezing the trigger, uh, safety, how to do this, whatever. And when the time came, they went hunting and they had, the girls did very well on this hunt. And he attributes it to the training that he was able to do in his backyard with a crossbow. So, Interesting. you know, there's a, there are a lot of advantages. And I agree. And like you, you know, the state of Colorado, I had to get doctor's permission and everything. And I have, you know, in Colorado, I have a permit, lifetime permit, you know, to hunt with archery season um, with, with my uh, crossbow. In fact, I cheap hunted, unfortunately didn't get my ram, but I, I archery hunted with my crossbow and, wow. and wow. the thing I use, and I'll give a shout out uh, to Vortex, I use their red dye. So mm -hmm. my belief to make it really simple, simple it down. And the more simpler it is for me, the better hunter I am. And so I took the scope off my Excalibur crossbow and I put a, a red dot on that. And it's it's sighted in 
when I hunt whitetails, max at 30 yards. And once you get it down, folks, it is very effective, very efficient. And if I do my job, that bolt with the broadhead is going to go exactly where I want it to go. Out west, I shoot max distance at 60 yards because elk is a bigger target. Mule deer is a bigger target. Um, and so that's how my, my crossbow is set up. But I like it, especially Excalibur, shout out for them, is because there's no pulleys. It's just a recurve bow on a rail. So it's a horizontal recurve bow on a rail with a red dot. And the red dot is legal because it doesn't project. It's not like a laser. It's just illumination. You put the dot where you want it and squeeze the trigger. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big I'm a huge fan of red dots as well. And uh, actually, the elk I killed in Idaho is like Colorado. You're not allowed to have a magnifying scope, so I just use the red dot. And I I shot that elk at 50 yards, and he had to aim just a little high because I knew the tra tra trajectory of the arrow. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great it's a it's a point and shoot kind of thing. Again, when you have to uh, uh, the biggest deer I've ever seen in Maryland, I missed. With a with a crossbow with a calibrated scope, uh, I knew it was exactly 42 yards because I, I ranged him, and I aimed carefully. He stopped and looked at me, and I squeezed off the shot, and I shot just underneath of him because I came down 20 32 instead of 42. So oh, no. yeah, and that's uh, why I don't I don't use a scope because I get yeah. confused. Keep yeah, it simple. It, it's, it's called pin confusion. Yeah, uh, archers have that with uh, when they have pins. You have two or three or four pins. You know, you get which pin in between and so forth. Yeah, the red dot is it. it and and with today's fast crossbows, if you sight your bow in at twenty-two, usually twenty-two yards is a good one. Um, you know, if you're at get a ten-yard shot, you're still going to be just about this high. And if you've got a thirty-yard shot, you're going to be about this low. So either of those things are well within the kill zone of, uh, of a white-tailed deer or a mule deer, either one. And so, you know, you really have, with that one red dot, you really have a, a, a 10 to, to 30 yard, just point, aim and shoot. And, uh, and that's right. often all the time you have to do. I mean, you, it boils down to a second or less sometimes. Yes, it does. And my Excalibur goes at 380 feet of Per second so okay that's a fast one yeah yeah that's real fast inside of 30 yards i mean it blinks i mean i keep both eyes open but it's there when i pull the trigger squeeze the trigger it's 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 there and uh i use uh iron will uh broadheads and i just like them fixed broadheads and with all your history let's talk we we got a few more minutes here let's talk about uh, gear, archery gear, mechanicals versus fixed blade broadheads? Uh, it, it depends. Um, uh, it, the advantage is mechanicals, you can shoot a bigger head. In other words, what, one of the heads I use a lot are severs, S-E-V-R, and the, the, there are two blade head. The two blades actually collapse into the ferrule. So, I mean, you don't have any wind planing at all. It, it, it has to shoot like a target point. Uh, I use 150 grain Robustos. So I've had good, I've had great success with those. I've used them on hog hunts. I've used them in Africa, works really well. Um, the fixed blades, um, the elk that I killed, I killed with a wasp three blade. Um, and, and again, as long as your broadheads fly like target points, then you know, you're gonna be successful with them. If they if they don't if you sometimes a broadhead a fixed blade will shoot a little to the left or a little to the right or whatever you you cannot remember to to aim a little left or a little right at the moment of truth you're going to put that sight or the pin or whatever exactly where you want to aim and it's and you're going to let go you're just you and if you try and remember that kind of thing you're going to hesitate and you're going to miss. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know. There isn't. That's like a Ford and Chevy question. <laughs> you know, there's never going to be an answer. Uh, the the uh, the uh, fixed heads are ideal because they cut. You know, they they are always open. You never have to worry about that. So if you if you can use a fixed head as long as it flies, like your target points, because no, you're not going <clears> to. <throat> if you practice with broadheads, um, it's going to get real expensive. Real expensive. Uh, real expensive. And secondly, you're going to chew up your targets. Um, you know, targets now are a couple hundred dollars to, because you have to handle such speed. And, uh, and you know, it's not uncommon uh, with a, if you shoot a target point into a foam target, uh, the, the speed is so great that the, the friction from the speed of the arrow actually melts the foam inside. And then you end up like the proverbial pulling the sword out of the rock or out of the stone, you know, and I've had arrows broken. I have a target downstairs now that has a, a broken arrow and sticking out like this. I, I had to use vice grips to try and get it out, eventually destroyed the arrow. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the, whether you use mechanical or fixed, the critical point is that it flies like your target point so that you can practice. So you can practice quartering away and, and longer distances. If you use a red dot like you you and I both use, you need to practice aiming a little high at 40 or, or, or higher at 50 so that you know where that is. You need to you know be accustomed with all of that. And if you use a compound, then you need to, you know, then your form is more important. So you need to continually practice. And if and if you're shooting broadheads all the time, wow, you're gonna, you know, at $15 a piece uh, anymore, it's that's that's way too expensive. What it will tend to do is you're not going to practice as much as you should, <laughs> just because you you can't afford it. So right. uh, again, I think that's personal choice. Uh, but the, the 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 absolute must is that is that what you practice with uh, flies identical to what you hunt with. Joe, let's talk about let's wrap up the show here. We got about five more minutes. Let's talk about bowhunting.net. Okay. All right. Well, I, we just came back I, again. I've um, I, again, I've written my whole life. Uh, I've done a lot of blogging, photography and that kind of thing. I think I don't think they like me as much as they like my portfolio of photos. So, <laughs> so that's hey, whatever it works. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they got. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I post a real post at least five times a week. Um, I was at the ATA show here, the Archer Trade Association show, where all the manufacturers come to introduce their new products. Um, you know, I'm still doing, you know, I'm doing a product a day now and, and posting. So you go to bowhunting.net. It's, it's, it's real easy to find. You'll find a lot of information there. And as we go along, uh, uh, the nice thing about it is, uh, you know, if the, if the country's getting a, a blast like they did last week, and we can post about snow camo or hunting in cold weather or how to keep your feet warm or whatever. So, you know, you can literally do it uh, in almost in real time. Uh, so that if some big event, I can talk about the, you know, the Ravens playing down the road. Um, I'm taking my, taking my grandson hunting the day before the, you know, that big game. So it's fun to include things that are, that are very current. So the, the deal is all you got to do is go to uh, uh, bowhunting.net uh, sign up it's free and um uh we encourage questions or submissions um there's a there's a section where if you want to submit an article or or a post or whatever i have a i have a a, a format to go through that's that makes the writing the article much simpler so if you want to contribute you're welcome to do that so i'm excited about having the the post and get a chance to meet you hutch and, uh, oh, and yeah. all your viewers <laughs> well you know, it's a very profitable, I, I, some companies are profitable, but revenue-wise, the outdoor industry is very large, but the community is very small. And the SHOT Show starting up in just a couple of days, and I don't know how many billions of dollars is represented there, but it's significant. Do you know that number, Joe? I, I, I don't know. I, I know that... I know that when I went to my first shot show, the, there was no archery trade show that hadn't happened yet. 
there was a, um, it, the, the SHOT Show included all hunting, uh, rifles, a little bit of tactical and, and law enforcement, and, and, um, and archery. So it was pretty much the whole shooting industry. Uh, now, um, much of the show has been taken over by law enforcement and tactical. That's, uh, it's, that's transitioned in Archery Trade Association. Again, they broke off and started their own show. And a, a quick, a quick I, I hunted with a president of Golden Eagle Archery, and he told me this. Uh, but way back then, there was uh, PSE and, and Golden Eagle and probably Hoyt. And the man that put this together invited those big three. And then he called, I don't, and none of them responded to come to the show. It was going to be the first time. So what he did, he called them up and he said, hey, you know, PSE is going to be there. Golden Eagle is going to be there. I, I hate for you to be out of this. And <laughs> they said, okay. And then he called up, then he called up Golden Eagle and said, called Marv Epling. And he lied to all three of them. But he got, he convinced the big three to attend the show. And once all of them came, uh, then all of the uh, supporting products and so forth came with it. So, yeah, that, so it got off by a bluff, I guess, is what you'd call that. It's called marketing. Marketing, okay. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So any last thoughts, Joe, you want to leave the listeners at Hutch on Hunting? Um, well, no. I, number one, I want to thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet uh, uh, meet your uh, your audience. And uh, again, I hope that we can interact together. And, you know, if you like this, tell Hutch and uh, maybe we'll talk about something else. If you want to do a, a, a podcast just on Africa, we could do that or, um, you know, hunting in the West or, or elk hunting or whatever. I've done a lot of that. I hunt on Indian reservations quite a lot. So uh, I do that. I, I also hunt uh, with the crossbow during rifle seasons a lot. So I do that also. I prefer yeah. that because yeah. what I've found on the farm, I've been hunting the same farm in Wisconsin that I killed my first deer on. So that was 57 years ago or something. And because I don't get up in tree stands anymore, um, just because of my age and I don't want to, I do have a strap, a safety belt that keeps me in the, you know, if I fall, but I also have a strap that I strap myself in and I just, I just don't like that anymore. So I just sit on the ground and I've had as much success off the ground folks with my crossbow during gun season as I had had with my rifle. And that's saying that I'm a better hunter at 78 than I was at 22 years old. I'm definitely yeah. a better hunter. I'm more patient. I know I've got a firing zone. I got my sticks up, my crossbows on sticks. It's not going to move. If a deer comes through that zone, my kill zone, I call it, 90% of the time I'm going to get them. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I have a place exactly like that. Yep, and I, I can't wait to go. I have to draw a tag every year to get there, <laughs> and I worry that I'm not going to be able to do that. But, yeah, I, I hunt exactly the same way. I, um, um, you know, I, I kill the deer there almost every time I go, and it's just, it's just so exciting. It's during the rifle season. Rifle hunters don't want to go there because it's so thick, and, uh, but it's, it's indeed exciting. Well, so, yeah, because you're up close and personal to deer. Yeah. I've had deer within feet of my feet sitting on the ground, and they mm -hmm. never knew I was there. Now, and I use cover. I'll give a shout off to Evercom, produced by Doug and Karen Roberts of yeah. Conquest Synth. I use that religiously. So there's a shout out. That's part of one of my secret sauces. But it's rewarding for a person my age to be able to pick and choose no i don't want to shoot that buck no i'm not going to shoot that doe or yeah that doe comes through i'm going to shoot her and eddie has the gator and we can just like africa he brings a gator right down we 
throw it in the back of the gator, go back up the hill, go to the farm, hang it up in the barn, and, you know, then go out and do it again. Because we have, yep. on the farm, we have multiple tags. Oh, okay. We have multiple tags. I have to get a buck tag. You know, I have to buy that. But then on doe tags, we have, you know, crop depredation tags. So we have multiple tags on the farm. So with that, this is Hutch on Hunting, your host at hutchonhunting.com. And it's so exciting just to sit and spend an hour with gentlemen, iconic gentlemen from the industry, Mr. Joe Byers. And good luck at your new position with bowhunting.net. And we'll talk to you real soon because, yeah, I'd like to do this again. You got you got as many stories as I got, or maybe more. <laughs> Or maybe more. And with that, folks, go out there, make it a fantastic day.